Shape Moda designs women's trousers to suit everybody's shape to get the perfect fit. Just imagine that as soon as you wear a pair of trousers, they feel like the best piece of clothing ever. Dress for your body shape with Shape Moda and make a huge change in your life now. Go to shapemoda.com and find out which body shape you have. Shape Moda gives you the perfect fit. Welcome back to the Women's Podcast. I'm Roisin Ingle. We're going to be bringing you a replay of an episode today because the guest we had lined up for the episode couldn't make it, which sometimes happens. But actually, even though this one is around a year old, I'm glad we're running it again. And I want us to be going in a bit more in the podcast to issues of the environment, of climate. And I suppose it's the conversation that really should be on the top of everyone's agenda, but it isn't always for various reasons. So, yeah, I'm glad we're replaying this one. Basically, a while back, we did an episode called How Women Can Save the Planet and Why They Shouldn't Have to. Here's a little clip from that. I think one of the things that is really most harmful is this idea that it's up to individuals, particularly women in their role as shoppers in chief, to, (laughs) you know, buy green and uh, recycle, and that's the solution. And if you don't, it's your fault. It's a process I call blame the dame. And I can't tell you how many hours I have wasted of my life that I will never get back again trying to buy a dress that wasn't made out of polyester. You know, and that time could have been much better spent putting pressure, lobbying together with other women, the fossil fuel companies, governments to change legislation. And that was Anne Karp there who wrote the book, um, How Women Can Save the Planet. And we'll bring you the rest of that episode in a bit. But first, I wanted to talk to you about Sanna Marin, the Finnish prime minister, aged 36, the youngest such leader in the world, who has been in the news recently because shock horror as a 36 year old woman, she likes to have fun and socialise with her friends while also holding down a very important job. Amazing, isn't it? Videos of her partying with friends boisterously, in her own words, were leaked to the public. And in the videos, Marin is seen dancing, posing for the camera, miming lyrics and seeming to be having a brilliant time altogether, hanging out with her friends. Finn McRedmond was writing about it in the Irish Times this week. And I'll read from that piece now. It's a piece all about the relatability or otherwise of our political leaders. So Finn says, further to her efforts to behave like a normal young woman with friends, Marin has had to issue a second apology this week. This time it was thanks to pictures taken in her summer residence and posted on social media by TikTok influencer Sabina Sarka. It depicts two topless women, otherwise closed, kissing. It may be scandalous to those of a certain sensibility, but to most of us, it's completely harmless. A furore has ensued. How unbecoming of a prime minister, no less a lady prime minister. Just proof she's not fit for office, lacking the seriousness and gravitas granted by age. Leaders wear suits and ties. Marin's leather jackets and denim shorts are more befitting of a responsibility-free concert groupie, not a politician grappling with the seismic philosophical and political question of joining NATO. Isn't there a war on, by the way? But Finn says all this priggish, 
pearl clutching it seems like the ultimate subconscious charge is a simple one. No one can truly be concerned at the apparently shocking news that a woman drinks and parties with her friends. No, it is the opposite. This is the most normal way I've ever seen a politician behave, certainly more commonplace than those who scheme over Pinot Noir and smoky men's clubs. And the viral machine of social media has kicked into gear because of it. It's the ordinariness of it all is exactly why it has turned heads. And Finn says this quest for relatability seems a futile one. If not actually relatable, you run the risk of being charged with inauthenticity, a crime far worse than posh. But if actually relatable, as Marin must have learned, you undermine your authority. Leaders, they're not like us. And in any case, we don't want them to be. Oh, what was lovely about that story, I thought, was the response on social media of all those Finnish women and women all over the world posting videos of themselves dancing and having fun with their friend. And what did Marin say? Well, in a quite a tearful press conference, she said, I am human on Wednesday. She said the last week has been quite difficult. And she said she sometimes longs for joy, light and fun amidst the dark clouds. And she says, I haven't missed a single day of work. I want to believe people will look at what we do at work rather than what we do in our spare time. And I'll finish by quoting Van Badham, who's a Guardian Australia columnist who put it very well. She wrote, power as a Western tradition understands it indulges the older white men who wield it. Their proclivities, sexual, chemical or otherwise, their personal lives are their footnotes, not their story. And she gives an example of Australia's new Prime Minister, Anthony Albanese, who's 59, who received a celebratory reception for his own big night out on Monday. The infamously rock-loving DJ Albo was cheered by crowds at a Gang of Youth concert, sculling beer, wearing a Joy Division t-shirt. No one obliged him to take a drug test like Marin. Indeed, the event represented what Van Baden called a humanising movement of what we understand as power coming to the where the people are. What Marin represents is the people coming to where the power is and the shaming of her for it is revealing. For far too many of media and cultural influence in the West, it is one thing for a woman to hold office, but the democratisation of also having a good time is as yet unendurable. Well, if she's listening, and I hope she is, everyone here on the Women's Podcast says you should rock on, Prime Minister Marin. We hope you'll come on the podcast someday and I hope you rock on for many years to come. I don't think having a personality and wanting a social life are mutually exclusive to being a Prime Minister or the leader of any country. And like she said, she wanted some joy and some light in a dark time. So good luck to her is what we say. Another story I wanted to bring you before we replay our conversation about women and the climate emergency is the fact that 80% of people displaced by climate change are women. And that's according to UN Environment. And when women are displaced, they are at greater risk of violence, including sexual violence, said Michelle Bachelet, UN High Commissioner for Human Rights. While they sleep, wash, bathe or dress in emergency shelters, tents or camps, the risk of sexual violence is the tragic reality of their lives as migrants or refugees. Compounding this is the increased danger of human trafficking in child, early and forced marriage, which women and girls on the move 
endure. And that's something that's going to come up in this podcast that I want to replay you. Um, it brings us nicely to our conversation in this episode, actually. And it was a fascinating one, looking at how we can't resolve the climate emergency without fighting for gender equality. Women, especially poor women of colour, are suffering most as a result of the climate crisis. And our highest profile climate activists are actually women and girls. And yet, surprise, surprise, at the top table, it's men who are deciding the Earth's future. In her book, How Women Can Save the Planet, award-winning journalist Anne Karp argues that when it comes to fighting climate change, we're not all in it together, but we could be. She joined Saif O'Neill, policy coordinator with Stop Climate Chaos, and Catherine Cleary, writer and founder of the Pocket Forests Initiative, to talk about why many of the issues raised in the book, the debate about women and climate change, and what we can all do to help. It's a subject we're going to be returning to on the podcast, and we just thought it was good to kickstart that with a look at this episode. So here it is. I'm going to start with a bit of a description of the book. It's been called A Smart, Bold and Inclusive Call to Arms that aims to resolve the climate emergency by fighting for gender equality. Here's a perverse truth. From New Orleans to Bangladesh, women, especially poor women of colour, are suffering most from a crisis they've done nothing to cause. Yet where, when it comes to environmental policy, are the voices of, say, elderly European women dying in heat waves, of African girls dropping out of school due to drought, our highest profile climate activists are women and girls but at the top table it's men deciding the earth's future we're not all in it together but we could be instead of expecting individual women to save the planet what we need are visionary global climate policies that are gender inclusive and promote gender equality and this is a massive piece of research Mm. but this is not the book that you were originally going to write tell us about that Well, (laughs) I started out thinking, I was in discussions with a publisher, a different publisher, who wanted me to write something about women and the city. Um, And I I kept avoiding getting down to it, you know, which, okay, I do anyway. But uh, every time I sat down to, to, to write about it, my thoughts kept coming back to women in the climate crisis. And I realised that over decades, I'd been sort of edging round this subject. And when I started to look into it in detail, I realised that there was a mass of research, you know, decades worth of research by non-governmental organisations, NGOs, charities, governments, feminist climate scholars, that showed that women were impacted in distinctive ways by the climate crisis, as well as the same ways as everyone else, um, particularly women of colour in the global south, but also in the global north. Um, but they uh, had played a far lesser role in causing the climate crisis, and they had been completely marginalised from the negotiations, even though on the streets, in social media, the majority of those young climate activists are women. When it comes to the top table of negotiations, women are really on the very edges. And I thought, none of this research has made it into the national, international conversation. You know, a lot of people don't know this. And what's more, when I started to talk to people about it, I discovered quite a lot of resistance to going so down that route. So surprised to hear that. <laughs> yes. So particularly, you know, for example, among people, um, certain men in, in Extinction Rebellion have been very upfront about, don't go there. This is a time of 
We're on the edge of catastrophe. There's no place for special pleading, for partisanship. We have to all be in this together. And, you know, this is something that we've heard, a kind of trope we've heard a lot with COVID. We're all in it together. Um, we've heard David Attenborough, Saint David Attenborough, I'm sorry to damage his sainthood, but, you know, saying we have destroyed the planet. And I thought, who is this we? There is no we there. there. And I thought, who are the climate guilty? And on the whole, I say, on the whole, the climate guilty are not women. Now, that said, and I'd be very interested to hear, you know, everyone's uh, take on this, but um, I did a, um, an event recently and a woman uh, put her hand up and asked a question and said, do you think if women replaced men at the top of fossil fuel companies, things would be different because I also discuss in my book how few women are, are prominent in fossil fuel industry and, and in the banks and institutions that bankroll them. And I said, well, the answer is simple, no. So we're not just talking about replacing men with women. We're talking about a whole new way of conceptualising the climate crisis. Okay. And I have to mention your daughter because I think she inspired you a little bit too. She's she's a climate activist. She did. She is. And she was from quite a young age. Um, she was really going on about this. And in fact, she uh, she's now, she's still young, but she's now in her 20s. And she was one of my first readers, a, a, a very uh, enthusiastic, but also critical reader. So her imprint is on every page. And she now works for Survival International, the um, the group that defends the rights uh, uh, and of um, indigenous groups um, and, 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 and tribal groups. And she has really deepened my understanding of, first of all, the relationship between indigenous people, particularly indigenous women and the natural world, one which we can't just kind of lift and appropriate in in the global north, but we need to understand because it's a way of living in balance with the natural world that we have totally lost. And she's also helped me understand that there's a lot of um, misleading greenwashing going on. So you get the whole talk of conservation, which seems like it's about protecting the earth, but is also very often about edging out Indigenous people. So, um, yes, yes, uh, kudos to Lola for her role in all of this. <laughs> oh, I love that name, Lola. That's a, 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 just an aside. Um, just I have to ask you about the title, because I feel like women are so much responsible for bloody so much in the world. And now you're telling us we have to save the planet as well. I presume it's like a bit tongue in cheek, is it? It really is. I mean, I was quite uh, resistant to that, having first of all thought of it, but then I changed my mind. And my my wonderful, brilliant publishers, Hearst, I can't speak highly enough of them, um, said, come on, come on, let's let's go with it. I mean, what what I feared was that people would think, oh, yeah, women, we've got to do the shopping, the cooking, the child rearing. Oh, yes, in our spare time. Let's let's save the planet. And, you know, this narrative of either women as victims of the climate crisis or saviours is a really uh, disturbing one, which I analyse in the book and I hope that we'll be able to discuss today. Yeah. 
No, it's a great title. It's one of those things that makes you pick it up and makes you stops you in your tracks. So, you know, you have to judge a book by a cover sometimes. And I think it works on that level. But it is fascinating, the book, because you did a lot of research and found that um, gender equality made women more liable to experience some of the worst effects of the climate emergency and also deprived them of the resources to escape or tackle them. And I think this is a really important point. I know what, what you were mentioning earlier about we don't want to get into rows between who's responsible, but it's it's very informative. And maybe you could tell us a bit about the water pilgrims from that point of view. So the women um, who are affected in Kenya, Ethiopia and Mozambique, because um, yeah. I think it's a good example of what you're talking about. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I, I start the book by um, focusing on a, a few examples of individual women in Kenya and Ethiopia who are responsible for either uh, collecting the water or gathering the firewood um, for cooking, for heating. And these are seriously long journeys, back-breaking journeys. I mean, one of them, uh, one of the charities involved compared it with carrying a huge suitcase on your back every day. I mean, you can imagine the health, the long-term health consequences of that. And for these women... I mean, it's a terrible paradox. The climate crisis has made these journeys hugely longer. So sometimes they're spending 20 hours a week just gathering water or gathering fuel. And then the, um, the you know, and, and because of, of extensive climate-induced droughts, for example, the, the search for water is longer, they, so they become these water pilgrims. Then the firewood they're burning, of course, itself hastens, you know, and aggravates the climate crisis and produces indoor pollution. And that we, we tend to think of pollution as something out there, you know, and something industrial, um, you know, uh, cars and, 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 you know, dark satanic mills. But this is pollution in the home, not, you know, improper ventilation, no ventilation. And these women are cooking and ingesting these fumes. And so they're kind of screwed every which way. You know, every way they uh, suffer. Um, and it's not, I mean, I love the quote from somebody, in, uh, uh, Irene Dunkelman, who said, uh, it's not that women are born vulnerable because we're not talking biology or chromosomes here. Women are made vulnerable by the circumstances of, the, of their lives. And so we're talking about gender here, not sex. We're talking about gender and the gendered roles, identities and expectations which also fall upon men. Because, for example, I talk about climate violence as well, a phenomenon that's been um, noted over the last decade or so. And and again, not just in the global south, in the global north as well, after floods in New Zealand, bushfires in Australia, men who are in, in traditional masculinity, and I have to use that um, adjective because there are many different kinds of masculinities. There are men who don't espouse that kind of masculinity. I live with one of them, actually. So do I. And it's his birthday today. (laughs) Happy birthday, Peter. Um, And, um, and, but in traditional masculinity, men are tasked with protecting the home, protecting the children, protecting the wives. And when they can't live up to that task because of climate, the climate crisis, they feel often, not invariably, but often such uh, rage and a sense of failure that they hit out. And who do they hit out at? We know that women, on the whole, tend to turn inwards when in frustration and, and, and self-harm, and men turn outwards and they hit out at 
at um, the women folk around them. And, and one of the arguments of the book is that you, in order to, to, uh, in order to stop this devastating thing unfolding, you know, the road to catastrophe, we have to have a proper analysis of what's caused it. Because if we have the, a wrong understanding of what's caused it, we can't get the right solutions. And the right solutions, many of them are brilliant because they tackle gender inequality and they challenge gender inequality and the climate crisis at the same time. And what transpires, and there's a massive evidence to show this now, what transpires is that men in more gender equal societies flourish and benefit because patriarchy, okay, we, we grow up with the idea that patriarchy, um, men benefit. And of course they do. Rich white men in particular do benefit and from the extractive industries, but men also suffer from 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 patriarchy and, and, and capitalism. They suffer the divorce rates, the alcoholism, the level of depression, the level of violence. Um, and there's a lot of evidence that men, everything from they sleep better, they uh, profess themselves more contented in more gender equal societies. So what we're talking about here is we have to stop thinking of the climate crisis as this kind of separate identity that we deal with. It, it, it has emerged from the way we have organised our society, socially, economically, politically, um, since the Industrial Revolution, but in particular, in, uh, in the years since my oldest daughter, who's just had a baby last week, um, since she was born in 1989, the, the acceleration of damage is terrifying. And in that period, we have seen the development of a particular stage of capitalism, of neoliberalism. And we have to unpick these connections between the climate crisis, a crisis in ma of masculinity, if you like, and neoliberalism. And that is how we're going to get out of this mess. Well, no, I think that's very well articulated. I want to bring Catherine and Simon in a minute. But before I do, I just want to say what I took from the book is, I mean, it's really not just about us buying green, getting emissions down, all these things we're told. You're talking about finding a whole new way of, of living together. And I suppose that's encapsulated in this Green New Deal for women. So tell us a little bit about that. And I'm going to bring in Catherine and Sive then. Well, um, I think one of the things that is really most harmful is this idea that it's up to individuals, particularly women in their role as shoppers in chief, to, <laughs> you know, buy green and uh, recycle, and that's the solution. And if you don't, it's your fault. It's a process I call blame the dame. Um, and I can't tell you how many hours I have wasted of my life that I will never get back again trying to, have, trying to buy a dress that wasn't made out of polyester. You know, and that time could have been much better spent putting pressure, lobbying together with other women, the fossil fuel companies, governments to change legislation. It's not about individual action in that way. Now, the reason we think it is, is because the fossil fuel companies have deliberately um, uh, 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 engineered that. And so, for example, uh, uh, an American called Mark Kaufman has done some brilliant research showing how the idea of the carbon footprint, you know, you can calculate how much you are damaging the planet. 
was introduced, was thought up by a, a, an advertising company, Ogilvy and Mather, in 2004, on behalf of BP, British Petroleum, to distract from the fact that they are the ones who are who are damaging and destroying the planet because we can only consume what's been already produced and we have to start at the origins of that. So really, we have to focus away from that. So the Green New Deal for Women, there have been various attempts at it, but um, there's one going to be launched at COP26 by the Women's Budget Group and the Women's Environmental Group, a feminist Green New Deal, which is tremendously exciting because they are shifting the orientation away from consumption and what they are put, putting at the heart of it is the idea of care. And so perhaps we can go on to discuss that a bit later when we've heard from Catherine. Uh, absolutely. I know Catherine's really interested in that. Catherine, I want to talk to you about um, how you found this book. You found it a bit difficult to read and distressing, which I, I know probably Anne wasn't your intention, but <laughs> unfortunately, these are very stark realities. Yeah, I'm, I found it reading it last thing at night, which is when I do my reading, was was challenging. And I'm also at that time of life, lovely, wonderful time of life where my sleep is not great anyway. Um, and I'd love to see, I, I, I really enjoyed the opening, you know, I don't like the title of this book and here's why. Um, and I think, it, you know, if you could put a headline of why women can or how women can save the planet and then a subheadline of and why they shouldn't have to. I think that would definitely yes, sum great up idea. what this book is is saying. Um, but it was, I mean, it, it's a really rigorous uh, lens, I think, that you give to people who, and, and I don't want to put people off saying that it is challenging, but I think it is challenging to think of the absolute staggering levels of inequality that we're living in with in this world with you know the idea i don't know that uh you know the carbon footprint to use that that ridiculous thing that the fossil fuel industry gave us but the idea that that footprint of somebody in senegal is you know one person's short haul flight in the in the global north um and where those women, I was interested to hear you talk about, because uh, I've been at a lot of the, the climate strikes here in Ireland. I've looked around and I, lo and I find myself very emotional in, the, in these groups of children. Um, um, my sons, I live with four men who are the kinds of men that will, will challenge this system. But my sons have been there, but I, I have noticed that there are more girls. And I think part of it comes down to the fact that girls do not have the same feeling that the world is working for them in the way that maybe boys do. Uh, or boys of a certain class do, or boys in a certain part of the world. And I think that's where this book really opens it up the, the idea of, is the world working for you? And the world is really working for you if you're living uh, in a very nice house and you're getting into your SUV and you're driving to your workplace and you, you know, so those are the people who are really resisting the idea that that world is not working for, for everybody and will will lead us to absolute destruction. So that's where... You know, I and I'm torn about that personal responsibility thing because I do want those men in their SUVs to look at what they're doing. And somebody who's spending ninety thousand euro or whatever one of those costs today in 2021, I do want them to say, um, actually, maybe I should be spending my money on, on something that's not going to tip us into you know. And again, but I think it's very it's a very well made point that it is not about personal. We need to start. I think it was Bill McKibben talks about starting at the other end of the pipeline. You know, the other end of the pipeline is where the problem is um, and challenging that and saying 
Uh, but the level of change that's going to be required and then at the other end of that consumption end to say to people, these are going to be good changes and these are going to be beneficial changes and these are going to be changes that make us healthier and happier. Um, and if we can bring women from being on the streets clamoring for change into the rooms where those changes are being decided, I think that's going to be an enormous help and not a hindrance. And I would definitely push back at anybody who says to you, shut up about feminism, we need to save the world, because that's that's not where it's at. Anne mentioned it there, and you were really fascinated by the figures on caring jobs, Captain, weren't, weren't you, on how they're the green jobs that we should be funding? Yeah, that's such a great idea. And, you know, being a carer is such a low carbon and important role. Um, and as we struggle coming out of COVID with mental health issues, with uh, people, you know, feeling that they can't go back out into the world to have that idea that you're going to have your your fantasy of having, you know, a carer living on every street who can help people, whether it's with small children or with elderly issues, you know, those jobs and those roles um, are so important. And I'd love to see it extended into people who are caring for the natural environment as well, because uh, I've set up a social enterprise called Pocket Forest. We're trying to plant uh, native small pockets of native woodlands in urban areas. And at every turn, it's it's way easier to sell T-shirts with our slogan on it, which we don't do, than it is to actually get people to say, yes, that's work that's worth doing and work that's worth paying for. You know, we would love to train a generation of girls to become foresters because forestry is almost entirely male dominated, as is the building jobs that we're going to need to retrofit homes, as are the urban planning jobs, which are, you know, describing our transport issues. So getting girls and women into those areas with and with different backgrounds and different abilities and different needs, that can only make for a much, a much better scenario. And speaking of, of girls and women, um, you were heartened by the fact that the book does feature so many great women. I mean, there's, there's brilliant testimonies all the way through and you there's, there's mayors and cities in Paris and Barcelona all making really huge strides and making a huge difference. So um, I know we've, we've painted a bit of a bleak picture, but Catherine, was that a hopeful part of the book for you? Definitely. Yeah, those first person interviews with women talking about why they're becoming activists, what they're doing. I think that's so encouraging for people to read because they show the different roles that there are for people, whether it is. And, and again, I was very struck by that, by, by that idea that you have that women should maybe not be spending their time trying to go to three different shops to buy things without plastic packaging, that they, that time might be better spent getting a coalition of other women around and working on a political lobby, lobbying because it's not about the science, it's also about the politics and the politics is where, is where it gets really, really hard and it's really hard for women to walk into that crucible of pain that is being a politician or standing up and saying, this has to change. But if they're surrounded by other women who are, you know, supporting them doing that, I think that makes it much easier. Um, and yes, maybe a half an hour trying to buy some packaging free um, groceries, but definitely no more than that. Uh, let's just get the supermarkets to stop packaging them in the first place. Again, start at the, the end of the pipeline. This podcast is brought to you by shapemoda.com. Log on today to find your perfect fit. Saif, what did you think of the book? Oh, I really enjoyed the book. Um, I, I spent the last week uh, reading it and um, I, I, I know the topic is very weighty and there is lots of very important and distressing 
statistics in it about uh, the impacts of climate change on women. But I actually found the tone of it quite lighthearted and uplifting. And, and I have to thank you for that, because so much of the material that I read as a climate policy person on a day to day basis is profoundly depressing. There's no good news ever. You know, so so reading your book was such a contrast. And uh, I, I thank you for that. I just got so much delight. I mean, so the, the book is peppered with examples of how the strategies that women, especially the, you know, the, the indigenous people who are, you know, facing the most extreme barriers to being heard and to having an impact. There's one delightful example of the Wairani women in Ecuador. So they took some kind of a court case and when they found that they weren't being heard in court, they, they broke into song. And I just thought this was magical. And there's another example of an activist in, I think, Brazil, uh, Luisa, who, um, who, whose form of, of, of activism is through direct action. So herself and her group actually destroy the mining equipment and they burn the boats of loggers that have been harvesting timber illegally in the forest. And when you consider the risks to women in those kind of frontline defender positions, I just thought these women are fantastic. They are amazing and we need to hear more about them because those kind of stories inspire us. I mean, I think a large part of our eco-anxiety is actually down to the sense of paralysis, the idea that we can't change or affect anything. But when we hear these stories of the most powerless, the most marginalised women in our society just taking action and when they take action together collectively, how powerful that is, how symbolic that is. And of course, that's what the likes of Extinction Rebellion are trying to tap into. They're trying to create that kind of culture whereby we don't stand by and just watch the world burning. We actually step forwards and inconvenience people or sing or, you know, sit down on the road or whatever it is. And I think... Um, so, the, the, so the book is, is wonderful in that respect. I did find the... Um, the discussion of some of the sort of distinctions and, you know, political differences between the different voices, well, it's necessary to describe them. And I do understand your motivation in doing that. From my experience working in the climate movement, that part stressed me because there's so much fractious debate all the time. People looking over their shoulder or people kind of sort of saying, oh, I don't like what they're doing because that's not right on in some way or another. Um, I find that very draining. I find that very difficult to, to deal with. Um, and I've worked in this area. And of course, the task of building coalitions is another thing that often falls to women. And it's very energy draining if we spend all our time squabbling. And I don't mean women squabbling, it's everybody squabbling. <laughs> and, um, so I, I, I was really, I, I very much enjoyed the, the, the end of the book where you, where you zero in on this kind of vision around the, the feminist New Deal, because what we need more than anything is a kind of um, a campaign goal that we can all unite around, that, that, that is inclusive and that does embrace radical equality, but that sort of parks, like this, I know this is controversial, but parks some of that um, the fractiousness in a way that we can all come together because time is so precious. It's running out. There was a paper published just in the last day or two in Nature highlighting 
the fact that we need to keep 60% of all oil and gas in the ground if we have to have any chance of staying below 1.5 degrees and 90% of coal. So that means that, you know, right away, we need to start reducing our uh, production and ultimately consumption of fossil fuels. And there's just no more time to waste. And, you know, climate activists have been shouting about this from the rooftop for decades. But the reality is that climate change is already happening and we simply don't have the time. So, you know, in all political movements, there's always a question of strategy. What What's the analysis? What's the strategy? How are we going to build this movement for change? And I feel that the climate movement still hasn't decided on the strategy. And that 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 that's what keeps me awake at night, because if, if, if there was a, a global movement we could all get behind, people power will win out in the end. But I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. Yeah, no, I would love to hear because basically I think it's something you alluded to earlier, Anne, and it's this idea that, you know, you can't waste time quibbling while the world is burning. So what what do you say to Sive on that? Well, a number of things. I mean, first of all, thank you both for your your kind words on the book. And I I really, I feared when I started looking at it that this might be, you know, a gloomathon, really. And uh, And it was only as I was writing, I started to think, you know, I always... I always write with with humour and with jokes, you know, and I thought, I can't. And I thought, yes, I can. (laughs) One of my kids said, oh, mum, you're really starting to get your own voice coming through. So, and also, I I also felt inspired by the climate activists who I interviewed. There's one extensive interview sandwiched between each chapter of the book, and they come from all around the world. And they worked with me on uh, on condensing those because they were long interviews. And... I, I I wanted those there because I wanted to hear from them in the first person and I wanted to show exactly, as you said, the many different ways that you can engage with the climate crisis. There isn't a single one. Um, as to, um, you know, what, what strategy, I mean, I'm not sure that actually there is a, a single strategy, except that obviously strategies emerge. Um, and I, th- I I agree with you, Saif, about the... the the quibbling and the kind of, um, uh, you know, fra- factionalism. Um, I think some of it uh, is probably necessary to work out what is effective and what isn't. For example, I don't believe that in, in a kind of polarisation of, you know, you either work um, at a political global level or you just... Um, go to a hundred shops to get um, something that is a bit greener. I think what we need is we need to make it easier for people to make green choices. Um, And so, you know, if you take a poor uh, woman, uh, you know, a woman who really has very little money in an area that's a food desert where she can't access fresh food, or if she can, it's beyond her budget, the idea of choice is a complete nonsense. That woman doesn't have any choice. She can't make green choices. She doesn't make choices. And this emerged in the Gilets Jaunes protests in in France when um, some of the um, protesters said to the Greens, you're talking about the end of the world and we're talking about the end of the week. So, you know, how do we reconcile these things? How do we empower people who at the moment feel and are in, in effectively powerless? And the only way we can do that is when we we um, gather together and we become 
a mass movement. And of course, the the um, the uh, youth strikers showed a, a beginning of that. But you know, then we had a lot of comments about old people, and this is all your fault, and um, w which angered me. The book I wrote before this was about aging, and I, I feel very strongly about that as an old woman. And I, I use that word very deliberately as I try to destigmatize the word old. Um, it's one of the things that often gets left out of intersectionality. You know, we talk about race, gender, disability, sexual identity, sexual preference. Um, we, we don't often talk, include age in that. Um, I think we need an intergenerational movement. I think we need to hear loud and clear the voices of people with disabilities, particularly women with disabilities, particularly women of colour with disabilities. They are at the sharpest end and they have so much to tell us. So I think we need a multi-pronged attack. There is no single um, way forward. And what excites me and fills me with optimism, for which I am not personally known. I mean, in, in, in the book, I call myself a pess optimist. I think those around me would probably say, no, pessimist. Um, but on this matter, I, I am energised and excited by the creative solutions that women are coming up with. And, and one of the things that excites me um, is climate litigation, because I think this is a very clever way of using the courts and and using the, the grand promises made in the Paris Agreement, which so many countries and companies have signed up to. And they've all learned to talk green fluently now, and they've all learned to greenwash. And then the reality is so different. And in that gap between the, the you know the high flown promises and the reality that's where they've stepped in to try and use the law to uh, force those companies and countries to live up to their promises and I mean we've got now the paid for pollute campaign that is challenging um, in the UK the amount of uh, 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 subsidies given to the fossil fuel companies challenging. Um, the uh, Cambo oil field that is projected, you know, uh, the UK is going to be the host of COP26 and they are seriously considering developing a new coal mine in Cumbria. I mean, talk about speaking with forked tongue. I mean, this. Is, so these, I, I think there is no single way of doing this. We need a multi-pronged attack. We need to use all the resources available to us. Um, and in the book, in, in the second half, I mean, I, I agree, the first half of the book is not exactly a laugh a minute. I mean, as I said, I've tried to include some slightly mordant humour. But um, in the second half of the book, I think that is the more uplifting side where I look at some of the many exciting initiatives that are happening and that really are showing, are leading the way of how you can challenge gender equality and, um, and uh, do something seriously, uh, make a serious intervention in the climate at the same time. Um, so I think, you know, that, that's where the hope lies. 
Yeah, I want to ask you all, all about the fact that um, there are some criticisms of people like Greta Thunberg and Ocasio-Cortez in the book. And I wonder how you think whether it's important to kind of critique and interrogate uh, female activists and politicians in this way. Like we shouldn't shy away from that necessarily. Catherine, were you struck by that? I was. And um, in, I mean, in this interview, you've, you've talked about Sir David Attenborough in slightly less than glowing terms, which I think is also a first <laughs> ever. Um, Heresy. <laughs> yeah, I, I think it's, it's just a very rigorous look at our notions about people. And, you know, the, I, I'm a, I think Greta has had an incredibly galvanising effect on a lot of people, um, including annoying a lot of men who, you know, f- want her to just go away and be quiet. And I think for that, she deserves every, every praise that we can give her. But I think the point that Anne, I mean, I'm not going to paraphrase for you, Anne, you can, you can make the point, but I think it is that there is a danger of that, of, of the white saviour, that, that coming from a global north background, um, that it is somebody saying, okay, we'll listen to this activist because she's this, but we're not going to give these platforms because they're complete, they don't look like the, the, the people that we respect. Um, but yeah, I, I think, uh, and I'm, I'm very much with Sive on this. I think we need, we don't have time to put a perfect, um, you know, plan together. We don't have time for a perfect movement. Um, and that shouldn't make it an imperfect movement by any means. And it shouldn't make it an unfair and un- or an unequal movement. But I think any any moves that we can make, and the legal one is really interesting. I think there was some several uh, suggestions that the, IP, the latest IPCC report opens the door for climate litigation because there is now a direct uh, link that can be made between a, a weather event and uh, fossil fuels. So can people in New York or Louisiana sue the fossil fuel companies for the loss of life and, and property? Yes, they can. And I think that's going to make a massive difference as well. And that's going to involve lawyers who are people we don't like. But I think you know, there are people we don't like who can do things to get this moving. And the more people who get moving. What I worry is that we go through this cycle of panic. So the IPCC report comes out and everybody presses panic. And for a couple of days, and again, this is a bugbear of mine as a journalist, it's all over the front pages and it's top headline news. I think it needs to be all over the front pages every day. Mm. And you can't go from panic button to snooze button, which I think is what we're doing at the moment. Well, I think if I can just respond to that, I mean, I I totally agree with you. And I think, I mean, I hope in the book that I I wasn't um, attacking um, Greta Thunberg or any of the young activists themselves. As you said, it's really the way they've been used and weaponized in the media, which, uh, and you know, and I speak as a journalist as well as a a, a sociologist and writer here and professor, but... um, it, it's really the need to have an identifiable um, young white uh, woman who can fit into a particular role. Um, so it, it, you know, it's central casting and it, 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 it's kind of the way in which such um, uh, uh, movements are, are, are covered and presented as if they are, you know, events that come out of nowhere. And, you know, I compare, for example, the youth strikes that got so much publicity with other youth uh, groups, uh, for example, the Sunrise uh, Movement in the US that uh, are led by uh, young women that don't fit this, um, um, you know, white photogenic media um, uh, cis women mould. So, you know that that was the reason I, I 
I went down that route. But also what discomforts me, disquiets me as the mother of, of two young women is the enormous pressure we are putting on young women to become the saviours of the planet. I mean, and I, I kind of make a joke about, you know, oh, yeah, you know, instead of kind of scrolling through Insta for, for you know, cat pictures or TikTok for dances, you know, and then we know that during COVID, the mental health problems of young women, particularly in in um, the UK, have absolutely rocketed. And we're saying on top of this, this is, you know, here's this mess, you sort it out. And it, it sits very uncomfortably for me to do that, to... to to burden um, a, a young group like that and to idealise them because we are setting themselves up for failure. It is no particular individual group. It is all of us. And and the challenge, I think, is, I mean, you're absolutely right, Catherine, about how do we, you know, if we have this on the front pages every day, of course, people get desensitised. If we have it occasionally, then they have they get anxious and then they switch off. I mean, my friend Sally Weintraub, who's written a wonderful new book on um, the psychological aspects of the climate crisis to follow a, another one that she um, had edited in, I think, 2011 that I did a big spread for The Guardian about. And she was really early on uh, attuned to eco-anxiety. Now, we know that anxiety can paralyse you or anxiety you can... Um, you can deal with it, you can modify it by doing something. So we have to really think a lot about how we share these ideas in a way that doesn't make people feel, oh, you know, there's nothing we can do. I mean, I've got a friend who really was the first person I, well, one of the first people I know, actually, I met somebody early on who was talking to me in the 1970s about um, these issues. But my friend Mayor Hillman, um, who wrote a book called How to Save the Planet, no women in there, um, he has been banging on in a really acute way for a long time about the climate crisis. And he says, we have to let people know we're screwed. And I go, hold on a minute, Mayor, where does that leave people? If people think we're screwed, then they'll just think, well, you know, might as well continue as I am, you know, but by plastic, buy rubbish, eat, fly as much as we want, do anything we want, because we're screwed anyway. And um, he said, no, no, people have to know the reality. Well, you know, I don't think human beings can live without hope. Even pessimistic me can recognise that. We need to feel that there is something we can do. Otherwise, really, what is the point? You know, bury our heads in the sand. And so I think getting the balance between telling it like it is and galvanising people to action and telling it like it is and totally depressing people is a really hard line to tread. But that's what we've got to be aiming for. Yeah. And Saif, I know you want to get in there um, about this. Yeah. Well, I, I it struck me, you know, having read the book, that what I took from it was that we need different styles of leadership and different leaders in a lot of cases. Um, and I, I, I completely agree with you, Anne, that the the positionality of some of these white young women that are expected is largely a product of the structure of the media and our popular culture that kind of forces these kind of 
influencer type, you know, um, people into the in, into the spotlight and that, that they don't necessarily seek it out. And the media needs to do a lot more homework in actually seeking out all the different types of voices that are out there. And I think that would that would help enormously. Uh, so I do. But I do think we need different type of leadership. And um, the, obviously the patriarchal type hasn't worked uh, it is, um, you know, led to enormous inequalities and we need to think differently about leadership, sharing, sharing role, distributing power, distributing responsibilities and trying to avoid the situation where one person becomes, you know, at least a sort of bespoke kind of a spokesperson for everybody um, because that doesn't work. And they only end up being the subject of attacks and backlashes. Um, but secondly, I wanted to come back on the question of laws because we also need different laws. It is not enough. I don't think we're going to succeed in turning things around by using the current legal uh, regimes to uh, advance environmental and climate rights. Uh, the current re- legal um, setup we have, even constitutional uh, rights and so on, simply don't um, prioritise uh, environmental rights. And there's a huge intergenerational issue there that has not been addressed and hasn't really been scoped out in any case except the Eurgenda case. So the, the Dutch case, and it is a very exciting example of how you can make litigation kind of fun. And um, there was like 800 uh, litigants who didn't even know each other who signed up to participate in the case. And interestingly, the Urgenda case was a tort case. It was making the Dutch government liable for wrongs that were going to happen to Dutch citizens. Um, it's very difficult to copy that model in other countries, which is why it's so important that we continue to pursue the work of the late Polly Higgins at an international level and make ecocide um, a, 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 a legal instrument that can be used um, by citizens against governments. Um, Until we make governments legally responsible for taking the actions that we all agree are necessary and that are set out in the Paris Agreement and all the advice from the climate scientists, um, we won't successfully use litigation to turn things around. In, In my personal opinion, there's so many cases, but an awful lot of them have not succeeded. And even where they've succeeded, say in the Irish case, it was on quite narrow grounds. And I don't think it's going to force the kind of sea change that that we need to see from governments. So um, so I, I wouldn't put all my eggs in the litigation basket, although we definitely need to do that as well. I totally agree with you uh, about, um, about ecocide. And I know that there is an attempt at the moment to actually... Um, work up a, a, a legal, uh, you know, a, 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 a feasible legal uh, version of this to to, to um, advance it. Um, one of the interviewees in my book, one of those big standalone interviews, Ross Murray from uh, Switzerland, they just heard that they had failed in their course, uh, their case to the European Court of Human Rights. So they're now um, changing uh, tax slightly. So, but I, I mean, just to take you up on that one point. I mean, one of the things that is, if, if you think about it, most shocking is that um, uh, uh, companies and corporations written into, fundamental in their constitution is that their obligation is, uh, is, uh, is primarily to their shareholders, to make money for their shareholders. And if there is a, um, a conflict between doing something that is good for the planet or avoids harm and making money for their shareholders, they have to put 
the profit before anything else. So we have a system where enshrined in law, profit takes precedence over everything. Well, you know, you are, you know, you are like tiny, we're tiny little fists against a huge wall in this case. So I, I totally agree with you. If we can find ways um, and put pressure on, on the creation of, of new legal instruments that, and I know that, I mean, part of the, um, the Feminist Green New Deal is about putting well-being and health of, of, of individuals and groups and the planet as, uh, as paramount. And I know that in New Zealand, they're starting to think about that. In Scotland, they're starting to think about that. So all the elements of the Feminist Green New Deal, far from being, you know, pie in the sky, they're all happening somewhere in the world. They're just not all happening in the same place put together. And, you know, it, it, it makes me laugh in a kind of uh, black humour way because a lot of the uh, of the proposals of um, of halting the climate crisis that have come from men are these what I consider mad geoengineering schemes. Like you know, let's erect a a, a giant umbrella to save the planet from the sun's rays. You know, or um, you know, take a submarine to re-ice the poles. You know, kind of completely crazy stuff. Uh, that is considered uh, quite seriously. There's a new um, Cambridge Centre for um, how you deal with climate crisis that's taking these things seriously. And yet when we make the suggestions like Polly Higgins for ecocide or some of these other suggestions, people say, oh, that's so unrealistic, so far-fetched. <laughs> Hello? Can I just mention, Roshi, that uh, just in the last couple of days, uh, one of the first uh, direct air capture plants has got up and running in Iceland and somebody did the calculations on it. So this actually sucks carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere, but somebody worked out that it was going to take 11 million of these plants to actually capture the emissions um, of one year uh, if we continue as we are. And at the moment, it's only going to capture, I think, a few seconds worth of the global annual emissions. So the reality is that these technical solutions uh, or these geoengineering solutions, at least, are, are no basis upon which we need to plan our way out of the crisis. But they are very attractive to many people because they don't touch the status quo. Yeah. And I come back to that wonderful saying of the American poet Audre Lorde, which is, the master's tools will not dismantle the master's house. You know, you can't use the same thing that got us into this mess to get us out of it because you just create more mess. So the colonial attitudes, the patriarchal attitudes are not going to help us. But let's end on a hopeful note because there is a lovely quote. I know you were quite taken with, Catherine, by Arundhati Roy about COVID perhaps being a hinge or a portal moment for all of this. So let's end it in a bit of a high. I do, you know, I'm a sort of a glass half full person. Catherine and Sive and Anne, tell us something that maybe listeners can take away from this that they can do that's not going off to three different shops and not reducing their packaging. But What would you like people to get from this conversation? I think, um, yeah, I get a lot of uh, sometimes when pushback, people say, get real, you know, and actually the work that I'm doing with plants is the realest thing I've ever done in my working life. And it is wonderful. And if you 
do nothing else. Just go to a street or a park and have a look at a tree and they're, they're just about to be losing their leaves. That's what I'd like people to do today and just try and reconnect with that because there's so much joy. It's the joy that Sive talks, you know, the singing. It's all there that we can, you know, there is energy there when you tap into this that keeps you going. And I think for people, for eco-anxiety, for anything else, just remember those COVID days when we marveled at the fact that we could hear the bird song. You can still hear the bird song. You just need to go a bit further into the park. So go and listen to the bird <laughs> and song. And also people should look up Pocket Forests. You're doing great work Definitely. and they should get to know yeah. what you're Definitely. doing. Sive, what about you? Yeah, well, for me, um, activism is is essential and uh, we can't affect change on our own. We need to work together. Um, so one of the most exciting initiatives that I was involved in over the past couple of years in conjunction with Stop Climate Chaos and Friends of the Earth was the establishment of a new network of local groups called One Future. And you can find them quite easily online. And these are little groups that were set up on a constituency basis of people who came together to um, campaign and, and lobby TDs and politicians and government and all the rest of it. And it's kind of different to other types of environmental or climate groups. It's very grassrootsy and it's not connected in a formal way to any any group officially, uh, but it's supported by and, it, you know, uh, all the sort of technical background information is provided by Stop Climate Chaos and Friends of the Earth. Um, and I've met the most inspiring and inspired people. They inspire each other through this network. And last um, year, um, just before Christmas, we held the first virtual mass lobby and we had over a thousand people on one day lobby their TDs, organising Zoom meetings with everybody. And actually, it, it, it was just the most powerful moment where, where people brought their concerns and their anxieties and their demands directly to decision makers. And uh, some of them were really engaged and well informed and some of them were really resistant. And you can pick that up even over Zoom. So that's where our work is. And uh, I would encourage people to go online and look for the One Future Network and join a local group. It's really easy to do. Uh, a lot of stuff is still online and just get active. Meet other people who share your concerns and and, and just start doing stuff. OK. And and you, Anne, what yeah, do you think of all so that? Yeah, that's so true because the, one of the dangers is one is kind of closeted in uh, and isolated in one's anxiety. And when you meet with other people, uh, the, the thing that is is... I'm focused on at the moment is COP26 because this is such a pivotal moment. And, you know, the UK totally shamefully had not a single woman in its senior negotiating team until Antrevelian, the energy minister, was kind of, you know, hustled in at the last moment. So there's a campaign in the UK called hashtag She Changes Climate to make the negotiating teams 50-50. And beyond COP26, I think the more that women can get together and put pressure on their national governments to include women centrally, at least 50-50, because all the evidence shows that when women are, are in, in abundance in negotiations and in the political higher echelons and in government, they are more likely, those governments are more likely to ratify um, environmental treaties. And this isn't because women are earth mothers or have some innate protective gene, which I absolutely don't believe in. It's because we are the ones usually that end up picking up the pieces. No wonder we are more sensitive to risk 
we are uh, at the moment the way things are organized the ones who look after the children on the whole mostly old people and all the rest of it so we're at the sharp end so we need to lobby for women's voices to be very prominently heard yeah um, and I'm going to finish with someone who features in your book and who I know you all um, will be aware of is Wangari Mathai, who won the Nobel Prize in 2017 when she um, planted millions of trees to stop soil erosion and provide shade and absorb carbon. But there's another woman from Libya. Um, I'm actually reading from Jane Fonda's book, What Can I Do?, which I'd also recommend. It's another, and I know, Catherine, you've read it, I think. Um, but Amira Woods uh, tells this story um, about Wangari Mathai and she's, who tells the story of the hummingbird trapped in a forest that was being consumed by fire. And while the other animals, more powerful ones like the elephant, stood still in terror, the hummingbird flew to the lake and took a little bit of water in its beak to drop on the fire and raced back for another drop as the other animals looked on. And the hummingbird said to them that she was doing the best she could. And Mathai says we must all be like hummingbirds, using our power, using our voice to stop the pillage of the planet and to actually be part of the solutions. And I mean, I know it's a bit of a magical thinking story, but I just thought that was a nice way to end, that we can all be like the hummingbird, I suppose, doing our little bits. And hopefully with this change that, Anne, you talk about so well in the book, um, we maybe are at a portal or, or a hinge or a door to somewhere much better. And I'd like to thank you all for coming and talking about it because it's important, but it can sometimes be so hard for people to get their heads around because it's really complex. But I hope today we've had a, a conversation that people can really think about and and perhaps make changes. And just I think the key message is get more involved and more active on it. That's it from me for now. Thanks so much to Sive, Anne and Catherine. The podcast is produced by me, Roshi Ningle, and by Suzanne Brennan with JJ Vernon on sound. Get in touch with us on social at IT Women's Podcast. We're on Twitter and Instagram or email us, thewomenspodcast at irishtimes.com. Mind yourselves and I'll talk to you next time. Listener.